Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Jack Knaip. An assistant professor of English and Spanish at Limestone University and an international student support coordinator. Jack has a PhD in international education and linguistics, master's in education in integrated curriculum and instruction. He is also an alumnus of the University of Cambridge, Georgetown University, and Middlebury College, just to name a few. Jack comes with a wealth of knowledge. And expertise in all things sociolinguistic, critical thinking, and more equitable education for all. Not to mention, Jack is also an exceptionally impressive hyperpolyglot who speaks nine languages, including Spanish, French, Portuguese, Scottish Gaelic, and more. In this episode, we discuss a wide range of fascinating topics related to language and education. Jack shares his experience learning nine languages as well as teaching in both K-12 and higher education setting as a professor. He explains the complex relationship between language, race, and power and explores some of the positives and negatives of today's education system. Jack views education as an art, one that necessitates a holistic lens of openness, diversity, and compassion. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you. So hearing about your background, you are definitely one of the more rare breed in this world who are gifted with languages, but not just gifted in languages. You found ways to integrate your passion for language and your background in higher education. So my question is, because on this show, we realize and we recognize the importance of why, the power of why. So for you, Jack, why the sudden like fervor in language and higher education in your own stories? Good question. So my interest in language started when I was very young. My mother taught us Scots when we were younger. So Scots is a language that is related to English, but it's different. So it'd kind of be like the difference between Spanish and Portuguese. Sometimes mutually intelligible, sometimes not. They both uh, came out of Old English. 
so just for an example, the word home in Scots is hame, H-A-M-E instead of H-O-M-E. The word bone is bane, B-A-N-E. So a lot of the vowel shift type things that happened with English did not happen with Scots. Um, and of course, there are a lot of grammar difference and everything. But my mom taught us that when we were younger. If you've ever heard the, long, the song Auld Lang Syne that people sing at New Year's, should old acquaintance be forgotten? Yeah. So that chorus is in Scots. It was written by Robert Burns, who's the poet laureate or national poet of Scotland. So I started memorizing Burns poetry when I was probably nine years old. And so that was kind of my first exposure, obviously growing up in a household with Scots and Scottish Gaelic, that became an interest of mine. And then when I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher who was, who decided to teach us just basic Spanish. And then in sixth grade, I had probably my best teacher ever was Miss Mosca, and she was an Italian immigrant, but she had minored in Spanish in college. And during the winters in South Jersey, we would have snow days and there'd be snow outside. It'd be freezing cold, as you know, in Philadelphia. But Miss Mosca told us, she said, you know, we can either go outside for recess or if it's too cold and you want to stay in, I'll teach you Spanish. Well, for some reason, we opted to learn Spanish and... I bought a Spanish-English dictionary at the book fair and just decided from there I was going to highlight all the words that she taught us and then go back and start highlighting new words, like 10 words a day that I would teach myself. So it started in sixth grade. My love for languages um, was in a gifted and talented program when I was younger, and they, we learned French. And then at my local church, my pastor's wife offered courses in sign language for anybody who was interested because we had a deaf community there. And so I started learning American Sign Language and within a year was interpreting uh, for the church. And so that was kind of my interest in language. Got to high school, my best friends were twins from Poland. So they started teaching me Polish. And then I just thought, well, I know how to speak Spanish and French. I can use kind of the same grammar or the concepts to try to learn Polish. And it worked. And so I was able to speak Polish back then. Now it's very rusty. But yeah, so that was kind of my interest in languages. In terms of teaching languages, I never knew what I wanted to do with my languages. I didn't know if I wanted to teach. I didn't know if I wanted to translate. I really just thought, is there a way to make a living just learning them? (laughs) Because that's really all I want to do. Learn and speak. Get to know more people. I would sit at the table with, there was a table where a lot of Mexicans would sit at the cafeteria in high school. And I would just ask them, can I sit with y'all like and practice my Spanish? And they were completely open to it. Uh, I just loved meeting new people and learning about cultures. And so when I was in college, I decided originally to major in Spanish and about halfway through, I thought, oh, I should have majored in Spanish education because I don't know that a Spanish degree is really going to position me for anything. After I graduated, I started teaching English as a second language and really loved that. And so long story short, and we can talk about this later, but I did get a phone call from some friends to go teach at their school and fell in love with it. So I ended up teaching there for nine years and thought, you know, I love this, but I'd love to teach teachers how to do this now that I know how to do it. So that's how I ended up going to that field. So that's kind of the short version. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I love that. One of the big questions that came to mind for me is kind of a, I guess, personal fascination. I've always been intrigued of why kids and students can seemingly learn languages at a young age more than myself. Like even I started taking Spanish in high school and it just felt very unorganic. Maybe it's the analytical side of me or just how I thought about them. 
but I'm fascinated on that relationship of like a child's mind and language acquisition, which I'm sure ties in a lot of your experience with education and language. So is there something like biologically going on or like having to do with neuroplasticity or something? But I'm really curious as to why students and younger kids can learn languages easily and then it kind of fades or trickles out seemingly. That also could be a myth that I'd love to hear if you dispel, but just the relationship of age and language acquisition. Yeah, so there is a lot of debate in this area. So uh, there's language acquisition, and then there's the field of second language acquisition. So language acquisition focuses on a child's first language or languages, uh, including bilingual children. But there is a period before puberty that's called the critical period, where a child's brain is less apt to naturally pick up languages. And so for some reason, the United States government, despite all the research, has decided that, oh, we should make kids learn languages in high school rather than when they're young and able to learn them easily. So we get to high school and we teach them very much deductively rather than inductively, which drives me insane. I think some of that's changing. A lot of teachers who know best practice are kind of saying, "Okay, well, this is how I'm told to teach it, but this is how I'm actually going to teach it. I hear a lot of that a more inductive approach. And there are things that need to be explicitly taught, grammar points that are best taught explicitly, but immersion is really important. It is hard when we divide our high school class days into, you know, Monday through Friday, 45 minutes per period, completely separate subjects. So it does make it very difficult because you have students who are just getting at best five contact hours of the language. And that's really not enough to fully learn a language. So I don't think the U.S. education system, at least for K-12, is really set up on a large scale. There are schools that do this, but on a large scale, I don't think we're really set up well to implement what we know is best practice. Yeah, as someone who's worked in the policy realm for the past four years, something that I preach a lot and we both subscribe to on this show is proactivity slash preventivity versus reactivity. Right. And hearing about your story, it reminds me of the relationship between deductive teaching and inductive teaching and their relationship and their similarities, similar to the approach of proactivity versus reactivity. So could you dive a little bit deeper on that of why do you think inductive is more effective than deductive and how some of those traditional approach may be flawed in today's education? Sure. So a deductive approach is probably what many of us went through in high school, and it works for some, but generally the idea would be to say, here's the grammar rule, now I want you to apply it to these examples. An inductive approach would be, for example, if I were teaching Spanish, saying, I go to the store, I buy bread, I talk to my family, and then you start to hear, every time he says, I do something, it ends in the letter O. So then you start to internalize the rule rather than being told what the rule is. And there's a more active role that the the student is taking because they're trying to figure out the patterns themselves. They're taking ownership rather than being told, okay, he told me that I have to end every verb in O if if he's doing the action, so therefore I'm going to do that. So it just gives more autonomy to the student and allows them to process it themselves. It's also something that will show up better, or I'm sorry, be retained better in their long-term memory because they're the ones who took ownership and made the connection. Um, So that would kind of be the benefit of inductive teaching. Immersion is always best, and that's not always possible or ideal or practical, but it is always best. I love that. This idea of inductive teaching is good to me. So I definitely have a lot of curiosities around, is it being used in school systems now? It almost feels like a more empowering kind of sense of like leading with the curiosity, allowing the student to figure it out for themselves. I think 
you know, speaking from my experience, I've noticed myself more inclined to try and learn about things that come up as like a natural curiosity, right? Rather than being told what to study or what to do. So coming from a time where it was largely being told the rules in our school systems to this new inductive teaching, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Is this being studied more within academia, being rolled out in education systems? I just feel like it's such a new way of seeing language and knowledge and just education in general. I'd love to hear your thoughts around it. Absolutely. So postmodernism, which is kind of the reigning philosophical framework that we're under right now, really emphasizes individuals and individual construction of knowledge. So from an epistemological standpoint, from epistemology, um, social constructionism or social constructivism, there's a slight difference between those two, but that would be something that I would adhere to. And that that's the idea that students gain knowledge and they learn through interaction or a dialogic approach rather than top down. And I think the majority of education models now, at least the majority of academia, is pretty secure in saying, yeah, teacher-centered classrooms are not the best when a teacher gets up and just gives a lecture and tells you what you should know. Uh, An educational philosopher whose name is Paulo Freire from Brazil, um, he popularized this back in the 60s with something he called critical pedagogy. And he gave a metaphor where he said that traditional education, and these terms can sometimes be debated, so I just need to make that clear, but traditional education um, is set up so that you have a learner and you have a teacher, and it's kind of like a banking model. So he says that traditional education says, oh, this student has come to the classroom with an empty brain, and I need to fill their brain with education. I need to put the knowledge inside their brain so they can walk out of the classroom, and now they've got knowledge. So I filled up their bank account with new knowledge. And he says that um, it's very dehumanizing. Mm. And so critical pedagogy, he wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And a lot of it was the idea that a lot of the students were being denied, not just agency and autonomy, but they were also being told they had nothing to bring into the classroom. And the idea is that every student comes to the classroom with what uh, another person, uh, Louis Mole and his team, um, there are three or four researchers that wrote on this with him, but he coined the phrase um, funds of knowledge so that every student that comes into my classroom has a full bank. And so it's important for them to be able to share what they know with the classroom. So I might have a student in my classroom come from a low income neighborhood. I might have a student come from a rich neighborhood. I might have an immigrant from Japan, an immigrant from Mexico. They're all coming with background knowledge into my classroom and to tell them, here's the knowledge you need and ignore their backgrounds not only does a disservice to them, but it does a disservice to the class because when they start sharing the knowledge they have in relation to this content, it enriches the class because now we see things from different perspectives. Also, I might be able to say, oh, that student from Japan could probably connect with this idea better if we talked about this. And so you start to realize like they can make connections in different ways and there's not one standard way to make a connection between knowledge. So they're building their own knowledge, making connections with their own lives. But you asked specifically about student-centered approaches. And um, so there are educational models that have always allowed for student-centered approaches where the student takes ownership, the student is exploring, the student has curiosity. Um, Montessori schools, if you've heard of those, that's kind of the core tenet of, of uh, Montessori education. Charlotte Mason education uh, is all about, you know, outdoors, exploring, camping. 
So there are educational models that have always allowed for student-centered approaches, but I think it's becoming more mainstream even in our public schools. So it does take a while to trickle down from the academy into, into the mainstream education. But yeah, I think it is becoming more normalized. I adjunct at Converse College with their doctorate in education program, and I work with educators throughout the state of South Carolina and beyond who are doing research in their own classrooms. And I think every single teacher that I've talked to is of the mindset that their classroom should be student-centered. So it encourages me to think, wow, that's not necessarily what I got throughout my education. Some teachers were more student-centered, some were more teacher-centered, but it sounds like the norm now is the teachers are saying, yeah, I need to allow my students more opportunity to explore, so. Yeah, this is so fascinating and so powerful because I see so many universal themes, how you described the inductive versus deductive teaching, because even in mental health space, one of the most commonly used uh, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy techniques is called motivational interviewing, is when you interview a patient in a clinical setting and you don't really tell the patient what to do. Because a lot of people come into a clinical setting seeking answers or seeking advices, but a very well-trained practitioner will recognize that a patient, he or she must first recognize in a self-motivative way. And because the lessons you seek out are more integrative and more lasting than the ones being instilled to you, like the banking approach that you alluded to. On the same ways, the power of ownership is what I hear. Because I think through numerous empirical evidence suggests that the more ownership a student or anyone has, whether it's trauma, whether it's your identity, whether it's education knowledge, the more ownership do you have, the more integrative those knowledge will be. And that's a fact, right? And then even even go a step farther into the on a like a capitalistic approach where the reason why Apple as a company is so successful, because when you go into an Apple shop or an Apple store, you don't feel being sold to. You feel you're the owner of your experience. Right. And a lot of companies modeled after Apple because they realized that like because like nobody like being sold to, even though everything's salesmanship, everything's about sales. But it's about how you feel. And Apple is able to be a very groundbreaking industry as a pioneer in that when you walk into a store, you don't feel sold to. You do whatever you want. You browse. You have a free reign, autonomy. But if you have questions, then a technician will come to you. It seems like inductive approaches like the microism, like the universe and the country should operate upon if on a such a different multi-level level. So it's really, I appreciate you sharing that. It's super fascinating to me. Yeah, definitely. A lot of connections. And the thing that really comes up for me is what you alluded to as the, I guess, teacher-students relationship, kind of a shift from a hierarchy into a web, which I think we're kind of seeing across industries, whether that's through education or through business or finance, just really like trying to level the playing field and have the inner workings between both the owner and owny like relationship, but rather flipping it into a like web sense where everyone's learning and contributing to one another. And that makes me curious for your personal experience with teaching is having the expertise and knowledge in all language, but being interacting with so many different students. How do you maintain that balance of kind of shifting into a more, to what you alluded to, a web where you're incorporating everyone's different experiences, trying to, I guess, empower your students to learn from one another? Just I'm fascinated by the teacher's perspective of creating a, I guess, level ground and empowered learning environment. Yeah, so 
One thing that has frustrated me over the years is the way, like the books that I was reading really painted teaching. When I first started teaching, I was reading a lot more about pedagogy and andragogy and teaching you know, children and adults and best practices. And I think so often authors unintentionally approach it as a science and they teach it like, if you do this, this will happen. If you implement this variable, this will happen. And I know that any good educator knows that that's not obviously how it plays out in the classroom. So they're just speaking in generalities for their audience and for the sake of keeping a book short. But it was frustrating because I thought it's not that simple. I think of education more as an art. So I'll give you a classic example. Um, Last year, I was teaching one of the courses I teach in critical thinking, which is kind of philosophy and logic is kind of the purpose of the, the course. And what we do a lot in that classroom is critical media literacy. So we'll read articles and the students have to be able to read the article, look for loaded words and phrases, look for logical fallacies, look for examples where the author shows bias. And so we're really digging into the trenches. We're really you know, digging in deep to these articles we're reading. And they could be anything from the New York Times article to an op-ed piece to a peer-reviewed article. So we're looking at all different types of media. And one of the issues that we were discussing, and this is before pre-pandemic, was race issues, which is obviously, you know, front lines of the newspapers now. But two years ago, it was like a lot of us are screaming, like, this needs to be at the forefront, this needs to be at the forefront. And of course, the situation with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others kind of brought it to the forefront. But at that time, I think the issue that was kind of not back burner, but it wasn't getting a lot of media attention, but it had something to do with the Confederate flag or like Confederate soldier statues. And so it was talked about, but it wasn't, you know, all over the news. And so we're reading this article about it. And as we're talking about it, I looked up in my classroom. Now, I teach at a minority institution, an MI. So 50% or more of my students are minority of some sort. And so I'm in this classroom and I look up and I've got three international students who have no concept of the United States history, civil war, They might know some from talking to friends, but it's not part of their curriculum in their countries. I see a guy wearing a baseball cap with a Confederate flag. I see four African-American students. So as I'm monitoring the classroom and we're having these discussions, I'm having to, in real time, not say, if I talk about this, they will give me this response. If I say this, it will elicit this response. I'm having to say, okay, I have no idea what so-and-so is going to say. I have no idea whether or not so-and-so is going to couch it in terms that are comfortable for the rest of the class. I have no idea what so-and-so wearing the Confederate flag is going to say. So I'm having to manage. So I think it's more my role was facilitator and the students were having this discussion, this debate, but I have to make sure that things are going smoothly. People are learning nobody's triggered. So we're dealing with sensitive topics. So it is a hard field to balance. And I think the teacher's role in that case is to facilitate. Obviously, sometimes you have to stop it and, you know, put a kibosh on something if it's going too far and you realize this could be dangerous. Um, But yeah, so the teacher's role is definitely, there is this tenuous situation. There is a definitely an awkward tension, but I think that's what divides good teachers from bad teachers. Those who want to just say, you know, it's easier for me to say, teach this and lecture about it. And like I said, I see so many of my doc students and I'm so amazed by what they do every day because they're dealing with really tough stuff. And I think they're good teachers. They're able to manage lots of moving parts. Yeah, certainly. The idea of it being an art is really powerful. And I think I'm definitely going to do some unpacking around that of that 
you know, there's no one size fits all, but really the art of it as you articulated. And I think one of the things we talk a lot about is that stories often speak louder than words. I mean, stories are words, but like the story that you just conveyed, I think articulates that point beautifully because it is like you mentioned, processing in real time, really going through that, no matter how many books you read ahead of the time until you're actually up there, it's completely different things. Uh, one of the sayings that we always come back to is like reading a book about how to swim. It's like not going to really get you anywhere until you get thrown in the water and you have to like figure it out. So that kind of reminded me of the point that you brought up in the ethos of the example you just brought up. I guess the relationship between linguistics and race is one that I'm definitely fascinated in and would like to kind of hear your thoughts around because I know how we got introduced was through Clubhouse, and I think your Clubhouse bio describes you studying the intersection of language, education, culture, race, and power. So I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts around these dynamics, and I think 2021 is especially relevant of seeing all of those things come to light, but they also were in the background. I always consider COVID as the great mirror or the great reflection. A lot of the issues that were floating below the surface kind of came to light. So I'm sure the relationship between linguistics and race had a large impact on culture, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially as we kind of saw the year of 2020 unfold. How do you see those relationships and what do those dynamics look like? Yeah, so I guess that kind of goes back to the beginnings of language study for me as well. I grew up in a very uh, rural area it was a farming community, but our town was so small. I think total our township, which is made up of seven towns, was maybe 1,500 people. And so we got bused into another city to go to high school. And at the time, the high school was predominantly, or the community that it was in, was predominantly African-American. Now I think it's predominantly Hispanic or Latinx. But at that time, a lot of my peers, a lot of my classmates were African-American, and they spoke African-American vernacular English. I didn't know that term at the time. I just knew that loving linguistics, I would hear them speak and I think, wow, there's such a cadence that's, that I, can, I can't capture, but I can describe the certain cadence of the way they say things, word order, certain phrases they use. There is a definite system. As I got older and started to study African-American vernacular English as an actual dialect or a variety of English, I realized, oh, it's very rule-governed. There are lots of very specific things. It is, it isn't just quote unquote bad English. It really is a variety in and of itself that has value. That is, like I said, rule governed. So people like Walt Wolfram um, in North Carolina have done a lot of research on some of the rules. Uh, they've spoken to a lot, you know, massive, massive groups of African-Americans to get a lot of data and to be able to say, wow, these are some patterns we see in common. And so I became very fascinated with African-American vernacular English. Well, there's a professor named John Baugh, and he's written a lot of work on this, but just about discrimination based on linguistics or language. And so, for example, several of the research studies he's done have been as simple as calling an apartment complex. And he himself is African-American. He speaks standard academic English. He also knows African-American vernacular English. And he'll call an apartment complex, and he'll do this over and over and over again across the country. And he'll say, first he'll say with, you know, standard academic English, hi, my name is John, and I was wondering if you had any availability, if you have any apartments for rent. And inevitably, they'll say, yeah, you know, we're at 90% capacity, feel free to stop in, we'll take you on a tour. He'll call back with, you know, a Hispanic accent, and he'll say, like, hello, my name is Juan Ramirez, and I was calling to see if you had, and he might get mixed responses. Then he'll call back and he'll say, 
Hello, my name is Tyrone. I was calling to see if y'all had, and as soon as he speaks in that variety of English, he gets shut down a lot more. And so there's definite discrimination based off of the language, even the variety of the same language that we speak. We talk a lot about racism, and I think we tend to think of it in terms of just color, physical skin color. Obviously, that's kind of the foundation of the racism we have here in the United States, but it's so much deeper than that. You know, even in Clubhouse, I've heard people talk about having to put their names on resumes and CDs when they apply for jobs. And if they're scared to death, a woman was saying the other day, she said, you know, I don't put Nakia, I put Michelle. And I figure if I get the interview, I can say, by the way, my real name is Nakia. I accidentally had a typo. And to think people have to do this all the time, they have to disguise their name, disguise their voice, disguise their accent. So racism is so much more pervasive or subtle than just physically seeing somebody's skin color. Obviously, that's the root of it. But the intersection of language and power, it can be something uh, when it comes to vernacular languages. It can be something language attitude studies is a field that I've done a lot of. So that's figuring out what the dominant uh, theme is or what most people think of when they hear a certain variety of English or non-standard English. I did some research for Georgetown in the Columbia Heights area of Washington, D.C. So the Columbia Heights area is, um, it is currently, or when I did my research, it was about a third African-American, a third Hispanic, and a third white. And within that, I went into the community and I just would stop people on the street and I would play them samples of somebody speaking African-American vernacular English, somebody speaking Spanglish, and somebody speaking English, standard academic English. And I would ask for their opinions. And we started to see lots of themes emerge. Every time they heard Spanglish, they would say improper or bad Spanish or bad English. Every time they heard African-American vernacular English, the words lazy, uh, improper, bad English, aggressive. So these are the attitudes people have just hearing a sentence like, could you move your car? If they hear it in African-American vernacular English, they assume that the person that's saying it must be aggressive. So there's a lot of research on language attitudes. Uh, so it's not just vernacular English, also the way that language intersects with power. So currently um, our education says we only use standard academic English and require all students to learn it and all students to use it. We don't give any value or credence to other varieties of English. Well. It's very arbitrary. There's no such thing as a good accent, a bad accent. There's just accents or varieties or dialects. One isn't better or worse, but we've kind of set up this model where we think that because this one is the one that we've been teaching for years, it must objectively be morally better. And that's the false narrative. And so trying to incorporate more ways that we can use other varieties in the classroom. So I let my students, you know, I have for the critical thinking class, one of the exercises we do is we have interaction on a Facebook page and I tell them you are not great on your grammar. So celebrate your diversity, use whatever dialect you want. If you want to use emojis in your comments, use them. Let this be a free reign where you're not monitoring every single thing you say. You're just saying what you really think and it allows people to be more authentic. Also, for one of the English courses, the composition course I teach, I give a lot of opportunities for students to do free writing in their own dialect and share it with the classroom so we can all hear like, oh, this is their perspective told in their real authentic voice, rather than constantly telling students. A researcher named Alice Ashton Filmer, she is out of, or she was out of California, I think Berkeley, and she did a lot of research where she was 
helping students after school, kids that were in the local public school system would come to her for tutoring and they would show her their English papers and they were studying Shakespeare. So she looked and they just kept having a red F on the top with just markings all over the page that they didn't get this right grammatically and they missed this comma and they had a comma splice here and they misused this preposition just all through the paper and the students just felt defeated. So she said she read through their papers through the lens of African-American vernacular English to read their content. And she said, these kids completely understood the content of Shakespeare, which is super complicated for anybody to understand. But these kids got the themes. They were able to parse the characters. They just really got it. But because they expressed it not using standard academic English, they felt like idiots. And they were given no pat on the back for actually understanding the content. So um, I think it's important. I know it would take a lot of work to just overhaul our system and allow every dialect and every variety to be able to be spoken. It would take a lot of work, but just to give some credence to the fact that the current academic English that we prescribe that is prescriptive is a completely arbitrary English. There's nothing that makes it better. Just to let students know that I think is a good starting spot not just non-standard languages, as, as I've mentioned in some of our conversations before, Scottish Gaelic, indigenous language of the United States have been pushed out because we've told people English is the preferred or the best. Regardless, we have multilingualism is the norm in most of the world, and we haven't normalized it in the United States. We've told Hispanics, for example, who are from the you know Southwest, who are born and raised there and have generations of history there. We've told them the Spanish language isn't as important or necessary as the English language to learn English, rather than saying, hey, why don't you just be bilingual? Like learn English too, but also learn your home language. So that's kind of the intersection of language and power and education. So wow. I love this on so many levels because I think one thing that we voice a lot on the show and I think that most people accept is that diversity of thought is important. idea that you're bringing up is diversity of voice is equally important, right? Whether it's dialects, kind of bringing those specific languages, whether it's a new language entirely or just a specific way of speaking a common language, which I just think is so valuable. And I've thought about this a lot in terms of like a creative process or my writing in a lot of ways. It's sometimes when I'm thinking about grammar, it stifles the creativity or like the authentic voice that you articulated about. So I kind of would like to pose the question of the relationship of grammar and the way that America teaches language at the end of the day and creativity of this authentic voice. Like, do you think it's a transitionary period or really speaking from my personal experience, I'm speculating that the way I was taught grammar as a kid stifles both my creativity and my voice. But hearing that from a perspective, I'm just thinking through for the first time. I suspect you've probably thought about this relationship and even had conversations around it. So the relationship of grammar, the American education system, and integrating curiosity and creativity with different voices. Yeah, so thinking off the cuff, I've had a lot of discussions with peers and colleagues at different conferences and just in general about the concept of how do we teach students rules of grammar, because there are certain universal rules, how do we teach them those while still validating their voices? And so, 
you, know, you have one extreme that says just overhaul the system, let everybody speak whatever they want, and don't grade people for grammar. We have the other extreme that says no, students need to learn how to speak standard English or quote end quote proper English. If they go to get a job and they're speaking African American vernacular English, they're going to be discriminated against. So how do we? It's like this self defeating circle where. We want to validate African-American vernacular English, but if we perpetuate it, then when they try to get a job, they won't be able to get a job. Nobody will respect them in society, and it just keeps circling. So how do we break that cycle where we say, okay, we need to get the rest of society on board with recognizing that there's nothing about standard academic English, SAE, that makes it better. How do we break that cycle? Um, so there are lots of suggestions. I don't know that there's one way. One of the things that I do, and I've had lots of discussions with colleagues about this, is when it comes to grammar writing in my class, depending on the class I teach, so if I teach English 100, which is developmental English or English for academic purposes for both non-native English speakers and students whose English scores were not um, as high, I treat that as one class, English 101, I treat differently. English 102, I treat differently. So I, did, I base it off of, do the students know standard academic English? So in a class like English 100, where I have developmental English students and English for academic purposes, non-native English speakers, I very much explain to them, here's what academic English requires of you. In other classes, I count, for example, the grammar that I require, I count as 10% of their grade on a paper. So they could bomb the grammar and just have horrible grammar. But if the content is good, they could still end up with a 90. That's just one example. So I give weight to what is necessary. So I do think it's important for our students to know how to write academically. Eventually, I would love it if that chain, like I said, that cycle were broken and students could write in AAVE voice and be perfectly respected. I would love that. That's my dream vision for the United States. In the year 2050 in Jack Knipe's world, uh, people will be able to speak any dialect or variety of English they want and they will be respected, but we're not right. We're not there right now. So another researcher named Tanji Reed Marshall has written about this. She's actually got an article that came out two years ago or a year ago called to correct or not to correct. So there are a lot of researchers that are currently publishing on this about, I think a lot of us have that cognitive dissonance where we're like, I do think this variety of English is perfectly valid, but I also don't want them to not be able to get a job because that's all they can speak. So it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's a big debate in education right now. It goes back at least, if not earlier, it goes back at least to the nineties. Um, I don't know if you all are a lot younger than me, but in the nineties, there was the big debate in California about whether or not to consider Ebonics a, se a separate language and to treat it like bilingual education. So Ebonics is another term that was used for African-American vernacular English. So that was a debate that was back in the 90s. So this has been a, an ongoing debate and discussion about how do we treat different varieties of English. I just want to go back to a point you made earlier where a lot of your African-American students who have that knowledge or should speak the dialect of African-American vernacular English, they have a perfect understanding of the structure and the content. And I've heard this from a podcast recently. I forgot the uh, attributable rapper who said this, but he's a very famous rapper. And he says he views Shakespeare as the first rapper because Shakespeare is in cadences. And the African-American philacular English is also in cadences. And he says a lot of rappers who A, has intellectual paralysis and B, have the interest in classical English like Shakespeare a lot of them are masters of Shakespeare plays. And I think that also applies to like play acts and playwriting, right? So it's just fascinating that you, you share that with us 
that a lot of your students who, like you talked about, is such a complex, it's one of the most complex person and field to study, right? Because you talked about education as arts. And I just found that so like, interesting where the, uh, this current society doesn't necessarily view all dialects as equal. And what I mean by that is because like uh, to echo what you said, U.S. prides itself as identity as a melting pot. But as a global citizen who have lived in three different continents and four different countries, when I first came to the U.S. when I was 15, close to 14 years ago now, I've heard the saying of melting pot. I was like, OK, this sounds novel. But then if you think about that a little bit deeper, you're like, OK, how does melting pot works? Is all ingredients get melted into one. But the most dominant ingredient shines through the melting pot. In the context of the United States, what is the most dominant ingredient? Caucasian. So melting pot maybe unintendedly implies that if you're a, a person of multicultural background and if you came to the U.S. as a different minority or a different ethnicity, you're going to be melted into the whiteness of it. And that's where the concept of whitewashing happens, right? So I think melting pot at first, at first glance, it sounds very novel, but I think it's had a lot of deeply rooted problematic elements to that because like, what are you melting into? Because melting pot eventually becomes one. So you're not really celebrating the diversity aspect to that. So I think what you said really, really resonates with me deeply, not only as a former educator, because I also taught at an Afrocentric school. And that's when I first learned about the African-American molecular English, because my mentor was telling me that, hey, when you correct your students on a grammatical structure, you mean well and you have best intention. But the impact, the unintended consequence and unintended impact is that you're dismissing their voice and their cultural background. And that's when I realized, oh shit, you're right. It's a recognized dialect, that's crazy. Like most Americans don't know that. I'm sure most people have no idea that's actual a thing. They're like, oh, they're just speaking black, right? You hear that a lot, or they just sound black. But if you actually have a linguistic training like you do as a professional and as expert in the matter, you know it's so much deeper than that. And But then how do you break this cycle like you talked about? And even for someone who's working as a program manager, working with my clients, I feel that tension, the push and pull a lot is I want to celebrate and I want to empower them, but then I also have to adhere to the system to a certain degree. So it's such a tricky balance. Yeah. And but if you and your colleagues have an answer, please let me know in the future, because I like to also uh, translate that into my work. But it is such a fascinating, but such a complex field. What comes to mind for me is really the crux of the conversation or the crux of the issue. Right. We're talking a lot about the bandages that might be put on top of like valuing the voice or not. But for me, it sounds like the root issue is the systematic racism that still exists in America. And it is almost in a subconscious kind of area. Like before you introduce this whole thought experiment of like the example that you told of the three different dialects calling to ask if there's rent, that makes so much sense and shines such a light on the systematic problems. Like I think in 2021, everyone agrees that we need to dismantle racism, but really looking at it through the like small sided detail oriented lens that you just introduced, I think is like the crux of the problem. That's how, what was it? The 2050 vision for Jack of having everyone being able to speak those different dialects. It requires us to dismantle racism, not just from a systematic level, but like a baseline, very small, like step-by-step approach through the language itself. And I'd like to share my experience with language specifically from the black community and kind of alludes to Ben's idea of the melting pot. And I'd love to hear how this ties in for you. So for some context, my dad has taught in Chester for the last two decades. Uh, It's like a very urban and 
I guess, socioeconomically disadvantaged area where it's predominantly black. He teaches probably like 80 to 90 percent African-American students and will come home and I'm like 18 or something, and he would introduce the word of dope or fresh. And this is like way before this was being <laughs> talked about in white culture and things. So the melting pot element is the thing that I'm fascinated with of how language transcends specific dialects and then becomes, I guess, accepted parts of culture, specifically through the lens. I mean, really, the crux of the question is how social media has influenced linguistics, whether it's Clubhouse or Twitter, just how people are speaking to one another. But not just necessarily sharing those thoughts, but how hearing new dialects and new ways of thinking can influence what's considered like accepted English. You know, that right and wrong that you alluded to, I feel like it's fluid. It's constantly moving of what slang people are using, right? Like if you told us that LOL or OMG, like that's all 21st century stuff. So kind of the relationship of social media and 21st century linguistics and the development of it all. Yeah, it is fascinating. When you look back at like the early days of English, there was no standardization, nothing was codified officially. So we have early English where people are writing letters and everybody's spelling things differently and everybody was able to understand and we didn't have problems. And then we codified it and now we've kind of, a lot of people divide language or language arts into two perspectives, descriptive versus prescriptive. So descriptivists just say, hey, this is the way language is, let's enjoy it. Prescriptivists say, this is the way language is, but it should be like this. And so I think we've gone through so many generations of prescriptivism saying that this is the way that everything should be, that now it is admittedly jarring when I have students who are not capitalizing the letter I when they write paper. And I'm like, what the heck? But I realize that in Twitter talk and in Facebook, those things don't happen. And so I'm having to go back and say, okay, I know what you mean by this, but you need to do this. This is the, the rule that we have for academia. But recognizing that even though I find it jarring, the average person, like you said, on social media is reading these comment threads and stuff, and they understand perfectly well what it is. As somebody with a background in language linguistics and English teaching, it is funny because I, I don't ever comment. In fact, usually on platforms like Facebook, I always have to announce. People assume because I like languages and grammar and teach English that I must be a prescriptivist and I think everybody should have to follow these standards. And I'm not like that at all. So I'm always having to make my case on Facebook. Like people will share things with me about like grammar Nazis and be like, oh, I thought you'd appreciate this. And I'm always having to write back and say, I appreciate that you think that I think like this, but honestly, I don't care how somebody spells a word on social media platforms because it's not academia and I'm able to make that division. But at the same time, I will say sometimes I have to read comments like six times to figure out like, oh, if they put a comma there, I would have understood. <laughs> and I don't judge them, but it really is hard because I'm always using that lens of academic English. So when I read these comment threads, but the average person can understand it. I think we've, I, I don't know if this has to do with neuroplasticity and just the way we've wired our brains. But I think like my niece will read memes, she'll show me and she'll laugh and then she'll say like, yeah, and she'll read it in the way that it's meant to be read. But I look at it and I think, oh, they're missing a comma and if they have a semicolon there, then I'll understand it. So the younger generation does immediately get it. So it is interesting. I love that you talked about the equipped usage of different lenses, because I think that's like that truly is one of the greatest attributing factors to the polarity we talked about, right? It's a lack of context. Because common Americans view everything through a single lens of their truth. 
but then their subjective truth is usually in conflict with objective truth or other layers of truth. So I think it's important to be versatile with the lens that we're equipped with. I share that because I think this is a perfect segue into your experience and your teaching in critical thinking. Because you talked about it when you're reading some of these comments, you're baffled by, you're like, whoa, what is this? Uh, you didn't capitalize I, you're like, whoa, you're missing commas or punctuations. But then you have the metacognitive ability to set back and separate your initial thoughts, your analysis afterwards. And you can make a decision based on that analysis. You're like, okay, in this way, I want to be more firm about the grammatic rule because rule does matter. But in this context on social media, grammars is not obsolete, but not as relevant to the context and that you focus more on the content. And I think that speaks to your, I think the idea of critical thinking, right? Is think about your thinking or thinking about thoughts or how to be critical about what you're thinking about. Because most people believe we have control or we have commands over thoughts, which is a fallacy. We do not. Thoughts are larger than we are in many senses. And if you have any you know, interest or knowledge in neuroscience, you will believe that or mindfulness practices, right? So I would love to tie it into your own personal journey and with your current teaching as well. And now I will slide pivot into your more personal lens. But like, how did you facilitate the importance of critical thinking in your critical thinking classroom? Uh, because I think you have this very open-mindedness on a psychological spectrum. I could tell with how embraceive you are of different cultures, the fact that you teach at a MI, Minority Institute, talk about your multicultural background from your personal journeys. Um, so I think uh, you have this very constructive, but also very healthy mindset and how you view the world and how you view your classroom. And I think a key factor in that is your critical thinking ability and the way you teach it. So we'll love for you to unpack that a little bit for the audiences. Sure, so I think there's so much there. Um, I grew up in a household that was conservative Christian evangelical household. Um, we would have called ourselves independent fundamental Baptists. I think that term has probably, like we talked about semantic shifts, and I think that term might've shifted since the time that we used it. But um, I grew up in that environment. My parents were both very much strong critical thinkers and would often cause me to pause and, and ask questions about things. But the college that I went to was really interesting. So for undergraduate, I went to a college and I know I've talked to you a little bit about it. It was called Bob Jones University in South Carolina. It was the, we call it the bastion or the fortress of the faith, the bastion of fundamentalism. So it was Christian fundamentalism. And um, it's a really interesting place because fundamentalist Christianity would teach there is absolute truth. And that's what I grew up with. But I think that that could get scaled to weird domains where there was a right and wrong about everything. So it wasn't just there's a subjective truth that there is a God and he has his commandments and we should follow them. It kind of got into weird fields where like people in the music faculty were teaching that there's good music and bad music and this rock music is objectively morally bad. And you know, there's this absolute right version of music. And so it got really weird. And I think a lot of my peers there were like, what the heck? <laughs> I mean, it was stuff I'd never heard before. And so, but at the same time, there were other faculty that really taught me to think critically. I had a professor, Dr. Salter, who was very admittedly very scary. He <laughs> was from Germany and he had escaped a, the Nazi youth um, he was drafted into Nazi youth and he had escaped and ended up in the United States, but he had this strong German accent. 
we knew he lived in Germany during World War II and a lot of us, he was very uh, exacting. I'll use that word. He was very uh, scary, I guess, to be more honest. But he really taught a lot about Socratic method, about dialogism and thinking deeply about things. Dr. Schoolfield, I mean, I think of so many faculty members that I had while I was there that really, really impressed upon us to think deeply about everything. Um, we define our textbook that I use for our critical thinking class defines critical thinking as the process of purposeful self-regulatory judgment. There are a couple of definitions you could give for critical thinking, but they really taught us to be purposeful and to have self-regulatory judgment, to stop and say, am I reading into this because of my background or is this actually what they're trying to say? So in any debate or discussion. So that being said, when I, I taught for a while at a classical Christian school, so classical schools really embrace the idea of Western philosophy, Western history, the Western canon, to a fault, I would argue. I, I wouldn't be on board completely with a lot of things, but there was a lot of good. And we taught classes in logic. We taught classes in debate. So we have the trivium, the trivium, which would be grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Western Trivium. And so what they've done is they've taken those three parts of the Trivium and flipped them on their head so that in the younger grades, students are learning a lot about grammar. So kindergarten through third or fourth, fifth grade, students are memorizing a lot of things. They're memorizing grammar. They're taking Latin classes. So I taught third grade Latin. If you walk into any first grade classroom, you say, who are the presidents of the United States? They'll stand up and they'll do a chant or a rap and they'll spout off who they are all in order. So they're just memorizing lots of facts. Um, in the middle grades, they learn logic. So they actually take classes in logic. And in the upper grades, they take rhetoric and debate so that they take all the knowledge they learned when they were kids. They learn logic skills from middle school, and now they're able to make a good formed argument. So in theory, it sounds really good. One of my frustrations with it is I think it sometimes is exclusive. It tends to be predominantly middle to upper class white people that are <laughs> In classical education, it also kind of treats the Western canon as the holy grail. So if you were to read something outside the Western canon, if you were to read Chinua Achebe, or if you were to read, you know, anything like that, it would be like, oh, but that doesn't fall within the Western canon. So I think it's in some ways glorifies white supremacy in a very subtle way. And I don't think the majority of people that teach in classical education are white supremacists by default or uh, by mindset. But I think sometimes they don't realize necessarily that it can go that way. Um, I've got to be careful with what I'm saying, depending on who's listening to this podcast. <laughs> but that being said, you were talking about my journey for critical thinking. So I taught Latin. I did not teach logic, but one of my closest friends did. And so I got into a lot of philosophical discussions with him, and it really just challenged some of my underlying biases and ways that I thought about the world. Also, like you mentioned, being in love with other cultures and languages, being around people all growing up that thought differently from me, I think I was always the underdog having to challenge my own personal beliefs. So I didn't grow up with, like I said, my high school was, people were very different from me. So being a white independent fundamental Baptist immigrant around lots of people who weren't that made me constantly have to ask, well, why do I believe this? I had some close friends in high school that I mentioned my two best friends were from Poland. I remember ninth grade, they were Nazarene and I was Baptist. Well, from a Protestant perspective, Nazarenes are what we call Arminian. So they believe that once you are a Christian uh, and you accept Christ and, and you hold Christian tenets, you can lose your faith so that you can, if you die, you won't go to heaven. 
while being more reformed as a Baptist and being more Calvinist, we believe that once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian, no matter what happens. So if I claim the name of Christ and the next day I murder somebody, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. But if I died right then, I would still go to heaven because I'm still a Christian. So in ninth grade, I was having this debate and having to think through, why do I believe that? Like, I've been taught that, but why do I believe that? And so I was whipping out the Strong's Concordance, looking through commentaries, reading the Bible, looking through the encyclopedia about these terms. And so I really had to challenge myself because somebody said, I disagree with you. And I had to say, well, why do I believe it? So I think early on, I was really forced to challenge my own beliefs. And so it is sometimes sad for me when I talk to my students and I realize that some of them, not all of them, like I said, a lot of them do, but several of them don't have the same awareness or metacognition to ask themselves, like, why do I believe this? They're not asking the whys. And so when I was offered to teach this critical thinking class, I was really excited because that's really the bulk of what we do is asking students to ask why. Not what, but why. Why do you believe this? And I think the majority of my students that graduate from my class really do have bigger questions about why they think what they think. So definitely that's the whole why idea is one of the biggest ideas that we talk about on the show a lot, both from the macro sense of like purpose calling kind of like massive whys, but then also on the smallest micro sense of asking why a specific decision or why a certain way of thinking. Definitely want to double click on this idea because one of our sayings is better questions, better answers. And it sounds like in critical thinking, you're ultimately teaching people how to ask better questions to eventually reveal those better answers. So outside of the why do I believe this, I was wondering if you could share some of the other questions that you might instruct your students to ask. Is it cycle of whys of going a little deeper and deeper each time? You alluded to one question earlier is, is this my own belief or is this what I'm observing from the outside perspectives? But through this critical thinking lens, I was wondering if you could share some of the I guess, actionable questions that you've either used in your own experience or you teach to students trying to just think critically about the world that we live in? Good question. So we do a lot within that class. We start off just talking about being more open-minded, being truth-seeking. We have a list of like seven or eight traits that a good critical thinker has. We also have a rubric that I use. Um, It's a score of a one through four, one being a very weak critical thinker and a four being a very strong critical thinker. It comes from our textbook. So it is arbitrary. It's not like it's gospel truth. This is the how you judge somebody's critical thinking, but it gives the students a framework so that throughout the semester, as I mentioned, we read lots of articles. We read lots of, uh, we watch lots of videos, you know, we might watch a debate between Ben Shapiro and I don't know if you all are familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. yeah, him and somebody else. We might watch that debate and I'll ask my students to score them, score each speaker on the critical thinking scoring rubric. So do they address counter arguments? Do they ignore counter arguments? Do they cherry pick? Do they use logical fallacies? And we, we learn a series of logical fallacies, uh, a number of them. So we'll have that discussion in class. We do all sorts of activities. Uh, for example, one that we're going to be doing next week is what we call a social barometer. And I wanted to wait until the weather got good. And it's, it was 81 yesterday, so I think we're good to do it outside. Uh, where I have the students line up on a continuum. And I say, okay, do you think students should be allowed to use their cell phones at all times? Or is the smartphone a good idea for students to have on them 24-7 and to be able to use in the classroom whenever they want? If you think they absolutely shouldn't and they should respect the teacher and respect the classroom and the space and they should put their cell phones away for the whole class, that's this extreme. The other extreme is I'm paying for my own education. Don't tell me what to do. 
you know, leave me alone. I'll do whatever the hell I want. And you go over here. So they have to line up on the continuum where they think they land. Now that involves having to ask their peers like, oh, what do you think? Oh, okay, I'm a little bit to the left of you. Oh, I'm a little to the right of you. So they're having to have that discussion about what they think. Then I give them a series of everything from peer-reviewed literature to opinion pieces to National Education Association articles. I give them a series of articles to read for the next 45 minutes. So they read them, they pass them to the next person. I tell them, I say, it's okay to mark it up. The next person will get your paper and they'll see that you marked it up and they'll see your comments. That's okay. Just mark up these papers. So they share them for the next 45 minutes. They're reading the articles. Then we come back to the continuum and I ask them to line up again and see if they've changed. Now that time they actually have to explain to their peers why they moved or didn't move and make their case for why their peers should get on board with them. So they've now investigated it, they've researched it. And we talk a lot about how much weight do you give to an article? This is an opinion piece. Do you give that as much weight as you give a peer reviewed piece? When you take a peer reviewed piece, is it is the person an expert or an authority or are they just some Joe Schmo who liked the, uh, the topic and so they decide to write on it? So we talk about all of those things and we're at that point now in the semester where they've done all that homework. So now we're actually gonna put it into practice and they'll have this debate and discussion. Cell phones is the one I used last year. I might actually change it up this year. We might do something race related. Like I said, it's an art because every semester I have to ask the dynamics of the class and decide like, is this group able to have this discussion or is it just gonna get derailed too quickly? Is this group dynamic, do they feel comfortable enough with being vulnerable? Because every semester is different, every class is different which makes it difficult when I'm teaching two sections because a couple times it's been so that it's like, oh, I have to prepare two different things because even though it's two sections of the same class, the dynamics are just totally different. And I don't think it would work with this class. They're not going to be as open about things, but this class will be. So yeah. So those are just some examples of things we do in that class. An art for sure. Definitely just a quick personal curiosity before we transition out, but where do you land on the cell phones thing? <laughs> I think it's just like a fascinating topic <laughs> of, you know, the freedom, autonomy, but also the, you know, teacher space, like even talking to people, I think having like a notification off is such a disruption in the presence and the organic flow of conversation. So especially as a teacher, but one that A, had a debate with your classmates around this and saw their sides, where do you land on the cell phones in classrooms? Yeah, so when I was in my first year of my doctoral program, I had an interview for the doctoral program to see whether or not I would be accepted. I had my interview in 2012. I had my interview up at George Mason. And I thought, you know, I drove up for this interview to see if I would be a student. And at the end of the interview, they said, we'll contact you in the next month or two to let you know whether or not you've been accepted. Well, I talked to the woman who was the head of the program right after, and I said, I know this is probably really a gauche thing to do, but I just want to ask you, do you think I was accepted? And she started laughing, and she said, well, informally, I can tell you, yes, you've been accepted, but you'll get a formal letter later. So I was so excited. I thought, you know, I've driven the eight hours up here. I'm going to go to New Jersey and tell my family. And so a couple hours north, went up to New Jersey, and I told my parents that I had gotten accepted, and I was so excited to tell them, and they were acting really strange. They were acting excited, but it was a weird kind of excited was because my dad had actually gotten word that morning that he had cancer. And so then it was like, oh crap, it was just a really awkward, we wanna be excited, but there's a lot going on. So um, I leaned into that and I just asked my dad, I said, do you know what the prognosis is? So he said, no, your mom and I have discussed it and we really don't wanna know. I just wanna live each day as if it's another day. 
And if I know in the back of my head, I've got three months or I've got a year, I've got two years, I don't want to know. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people who do, but I just, I don't want to know. I just want to live my life. So I said, I completely understand. He, and I said, the only reason I ask is because I'm wondering if you don't have much time, I'll postpone starting the doctoral program. Uh, if you have a lot of time, then I'll go ahead and start and I'll come up on the weekends. So he gave me full access. He contacted the doctors and said, I want all of my kids, all five of them to have full access to my medical records and they can find out whatever they want. And so the doctor told me, you know, on average, uh, people with stage four mesothelioma where he's at, he'll probably have another year. So I said, okay, I'm going to start my doctorate. So that being said, that kind of gives you the backdrop. So when I started the program, I was really nervous about what would happen to my dad's health in the middle of my being at school. And I remember my first class, um, my dad was having some complications and I asked my professor as a full grown adult in a doctoral program. And I asked my professor, I said, I would normally never bring my cell phone to class, but I don't know where my dad's health is. And I don't know if he's going to be around in the next week or two. <laughs> it was getting to that point. And I said, is there any way that I can keep my phone on my desk? I'll have the notification the sound turned off, but that way, if I get an emergency phone call and she said, by all means, absolutely 100% yes. So I, I usually share at the beginning of the semester. I share with my students, you know, that story, but a very condensed version. And I say, if you can attest that you have an emergency to the level of my dad might not make it, absolutely have your cell phone on your desk. But I generally, unlike other professors, I don't have a rule about cell phones. And I tell them that I say, you know, if you want to use your cell phone, I'll be honest with you, it's disruptive to you, but it's also disruptive to me and to your classmates. They see you playing on their phone and it sends a signal that the class is not a sacred space and we're not all important enough. But I'd say, you know, I, I get it. Sometimes you need last minute lunch plans with your roommate and you need to send a quick message. So I tell them, I'd rather you keep it out of sight, but if you have something you need to do real quick, that's on you, you're an adult. So I don't make a policy. I don't have an official policy. I've noticed it does go pretty well. And one of the other things that I kind of impress on my uh, doc students is that if a classroom is engaging enough, and if there's active learning going on, students won't be compelled to go to their cell phones because they are involved. So when I see a student or if I see two or three students going for their cell phones, it's usually a signal to me as a teacher, oh crap, like this classroom is not a space where they feel like they're getting value. So we need to change the direction. I need to start pulling them in more. And it's a signal to me to switch up my teaching style. I'm not saying I'm doing something morally or ethically wrong. I'm saying it, it lets me realize like, uh, this, I'm probably not doing the best thing I should be doing. So I think that quite answered it, but <laughs> no, I, I think the, the, first of all, I thank you for being vulnerable on the mic and sharing about the you know tragedy of your dad. And we can go more in depth in the future, but I just want to highlight and affirm your ability and your capacity as an educator, because for someone from that space, as a former educator myself, You've glossed over so many minor parts, but the fact that you can facilitate two different dynamics. A, first of all, the fact that students have that trust in you. Because just because you want to do this social barometer experiment in the outside and you tell them, hey, here's the metrics, here's some of the guidelines, you do X, Y, and Z. If there is a improper power dynamics, if there is a lack of trust in the facilitator, in this case you, students may not exhibit true authentic behavior because of the fear of repercussions or fear of power dynamics or fear of X, Y, and Z. But the fact that your students are able to execute your vision 
to the extent that they did, I think it affirms the ability you have as a facilitator. And it talks about the trust they have in you. I do want to highlight that for the people because what you've demonstrated is not an easy thing to do. It's extremely high level. The way you teach, the way you facilitate, the way you create these active learning classrooms are extremely impressive. So I do want to acknowledge that for the audiences. It's so powerful because it talk, once again, it talks about the need to have nuances, right? Is that there's always exceptions to the rule. You can't be rigid. Like I do think some things, I'm a, I have a Christian faith myself. Uh, I don't know if you still do, but I, I currently am a practicing Christian, as I call it. And I do think there are some things should be absolute, but most things are relative, right? Especially with the complexity and the how convoluted the society is. So I really, really appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. And I think it talks a lot about the success of your curriculum is that you have the ability to critical thing for yourself because a lot of people like practice what they preach, but you actually preach what you practice. And even the way you reframed the perspective of, oh, some of the students are losing their attentions, they're gravitating towards their phones. You didn't view that as disrespect. You reframed it and you viewed it as, okay, I need to maybe pivot. Maybe I need to redirect. Maybe I need to spike up the content. But not all teachers do that because teacher is a power of positions, inherently so, right? That talks about the type of person you are as a human level, but also on educational level. Because this is funny because uh, when I was a teacher, I gave out like bathroom passes and I told them like, don't raise your hands because you'll interrupt the flow of teaching, just go out, right? And then I taught math. A lot of people have a lot of resistance towards math because people like what they're good at. But a lot of these inner city schools have a very drastic learning gap. So a lot of them found math to be repulsive, which I understand fully. But whenever I talk about like equations or linear equations or something more very quantitative, the frequency of people, my students going to the bathroom would increase drastically. So like the first 20 minutes, maybe it's one student once in a blue moon and then 40 minute hits. You see like I was I looked around, I was like, wait a minute, half my students are in the bathroom. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, well, what's going on? And then I, I first I viewed it as disrespect. I was like, wow, they're abusing their privilege. Right. But then I had to do some I had to check myself and I had to do some critical thinking. I was like, is this a sign of disrespect? Like, is it true? Because the question that I always ask myself is, is it absolutely true? You know, is it ultimately true? And when I ask myself the same question three or four times, the answer that reveals itself is it is not absolutely true. They respect me as a human, as an educator, because you have to earn that stripe. You have to go through the hazing of the students. You get initiated and you earn that respect. Right. But I was like, the answer was my content was very boring or it was not as interactive as it could have been. So I actually took that as a learning opportunity to redirect or pivot my content. But hearing your storytelling re reminded me of um, some funny moments I've shared as an educator. But yeah, at some points throughout my teaching, I've definitely had less than half participants after the 30 minute <laughs> mark. But yeah, I really appreciate you sharing what you did, seriously. And kind of, Thank you. and kind of on that note, the I guess relationship of student teacher, the trust, the power dynamics. I'm definitely curious as to the biggest lessons you've learned from your students. Maybe it's a macro lens of students in general, or maybe it's a specific one to two students that like really touched you in a in a way that has made you rethink your life. Just big lessons from you know individual students or collective student body as a whole. Good question. So when I taught high school, I remember my desk was against the wall rather than out in the middle. 
And in between classes, I was typing an email. This is back in like 2007 or so. I was typing an email to a, a friend of mine up in Michigan, and I just said something about how, yeah, I'm getting ready to teach Spanish 4 or Spanish 3. And I said, you know, the students frustrated me because I feel like they're not doing their work or they're being lazy, something like that. It was an offhand comment. Well, one of the students was actually over my shoulder, and I didn't know, and he was looking at what I typed. Now, that's a whole discussion itself of whether or not he was violating my privacy or whether or not I should have been typing that. But he did comment, and he said, I'm sorry if you think we're being lazy. And I immediately stopped and closed my laptop and turned around, and we had a discussion. And it was just very eye-opening to me because in that moment, I thought, you know, I was in myself, I was in my head, and I was annoyed, and I, you know, pushed this out. But Ryan Watson, who ended up getting his uh, degree in, in packaging science from Clemson University, and I think now is in upstate New York or New York City, uh, wonderful, wonderful kid. He taught me. He was just very nonchalant about it, but it caused me to have to have a discussion with him. And I had to apologize and putting myself in the position of saying I was wrong. And, you know, I was pretty early in my teaching career, but I never thought I'd get to the point where I'd have to verbally say it. Now it's it's the, not that it's the norm, but I do feel completely okay I have enough humility now to say, you know, oh, I screwed up. Like, I'm sorry I didn't open that file for you guys on Canvas or Blackboard. I screwed up. As a result, I'm going to give you an extra three days to turn in the assignment. That was my mistake. I think nothing of it. But that was one of the first times where I was actually faced with my own humility of having to say, like, I shouldn't have said that. That was not right to slander you or to trash talk you guys, even though it was to my friend. And in any other moment, it would have been appropriate. But it really did cause me to have to stop and think about what I was saying. Since then, um, English 100 that I teach, the first essay that I assign the students is their narrative essay, where we talk about storylines. We talk about, you know, Freytag's pyramid of having like, you know, inciting incident, rising action, climax, uh, falling action, that whole thing. When we talk about that, I have the students write a narrative and it has to be about some pivotal event in their lives where they, they go through that flow of Freytag's pyramid. And so they're great on content. They're graded also on grammar, as I mentioned. But every semester, I read these narrative essays. And I'm really glad that I put it first in the syllabus. That's the first essay they write. Because I read stuff that is tear-jerking. And a colleague and I, uh, my friend Megan and I have talked about it. She actually keeps cards on hand that essays that are really showing vulnerability. She actually gives her students a card that says, I'm thinking of you. Like I've had lots of talks where a student will write an essay about, you know, I had one student who just off the cuff, I had a student who wrote an essay a couple semesters ago about the time that she tried to commit suicide. And so I called her to my desk after I graded it. The students had left for the, for the day. And I said, oh, so-and-so, could you come up real quick? And I told her, I said, look, I'm not a licensed professional counselor, but I'm a good listener and I'm very empathetic. And I want you to know you can talk to me anytime. But also we have free counseling services on campus. Dr. Sewitt, we've got uh, Mary Campbell, we've got people on our campus who are licensed professional counselors who offer services for free counseling services. And she said, oh, no, I, I'm over it now. That was like three or four months ago. And then it's like my heart sunk and I was like, oh, honey, you're not over it. <laughs> like three months is not enough time to heal from being suicidal. And she said, well, it was because I came out as a lesbian to my mom and she kicked me out of the house and I just didn't think I could go on. I was like, okay. There is a lot happening right here. <laughs> there are just a lot of vulnerability that's taking place right now. And I thank you for sharing that with me. But one of the things that did for me is in the back of my head, everything that happened in that class, 
was through the lens of this student struggled with suicide and she came out as a lesbian and she's got a lot of trauma. So it really put into perspective. It's like, okay, do I really want to go after her about this small detail? Like, is there another way that I can reframe it and address it? And it made me realize, I'll call this girl Pam because that was not her name. It made me realize this is Pam and there are 13 other Pams that have their own trauma, their own baggage, their own background that they're bringing into the classroom that I might not know about. It might be just as severe, if not more severe than Pam's story. And so every lesson I teach, I teach through the lens of their narrative essay, realizing like students are coming with some crap, like these students have some stuff going on. And so it, it just puts things in perspective. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. It, it, it brings me back down to my memory lane where once you have the report, once again, back to your ability as a human being, but about Jack, the professor, your ability to cultivate that trust, right? Because without that trust, your students wouldn't have came to you with those vulnerability. So I do want to affirm you once again. And it's so powerful. And in a way, it seems like you were maybe unintentionally so, maybe intentionally so, found a way to create an avenue for your students to contextualize who they are in the beginning of the semester. Because I think a lot of the polarity of the United States, as we talked a lot offline, is because of lack of context, is a lack of nuances. And, but now you have found this very intentional and compassionate way and very powerful way to fish out those contexts so that you have multiple lenses at all times. So you're never going to assign a value judgment onto a student based on his or her actions. But now you're saying, wait a minute, he or she has gone through so maybe undergoing insane and very distressful trauma. That is the reason why X, Y, and Z happen, right? This is a reason why education has to be viewed as an art rather than science. Because science is all about variables. Science is all about evidence. And there's a lot of place for that. Empirical evidence matters a lot. But once you view humans as evidence, once you quantify their variables, you're dismissing entire narratives of who they truly are. Because these are human beings you're talking about. These aren't numbers. These aren't metrics. These aren't variable X, Y, and Z. These are known variables, aka human, who carries so much depth of unknown variables within so I do really think the, I feel like that's like the title of this episode is like education is art, right? Because art is so much more versatile, so much more multifaceted than science in many aspects. So I, it's awesome. And I wish I had a professor like yourself in college, because I do think that you embody the very virtue that we preach on this show is the holistic lens, is you truly view your students as wholesomely as they are, as human beings who come into the classroom with their own lanes of baggings and their lanes of emotional traumas and whatever and found ways to honor that but also creating a very productive and very safe space as a teacher and which is amazing a lot of times in higher education we talk a lot about theory but i think sometimes theory doesn't play out in practice and one of the benefits that i think i had in my first master's program my master of education at covenant college was we talked a lot about theory but a hundred percent of it was funneled back into the classroom what does this theory look like in practice and that was very valuable for me and we read a lot about just holistic teaching and teaching the whole learner and so that's carried with me even into higher education that was when I was teaching k-12 but even into higher education I think a lot of that has played out and even since then reading for example uh, Mikhail Bakhtin Bakhtin is one of uh, the people who I study a lot in the field of linguistics he wrote a lot about uh, something called dialogism and monogism or uh, monologism, sorry. In brief, dialogism says, so he was more of a uh, literary critic 
And so with literary criticism, he said, when you go to a text and you read a novel by somebody and they present different characters, every character should be viewed as having their own storyline. So rather than the author of the text sharing their ideology through seven different characters, you should read it through the lens of these seven characters have their own voices and they're coming through on the page and they have their own backstory and their own backdrop. So dialogism plays out in the classroom in the same way. So recognizing theoretically that every student that I have has their own story. They all have their own narrative. They're all coming through on the page, i.e. my classroom. And like you said, we can't dismiss them. It's very dehumanizing to pretend that all of these students can learn all the same way and they all have the same capacity and they all have the same background and this is how it should be taught. Yeah, that's all I'll say about that for now. Yeah. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Jack Knipe. We discovered so much from this conversation and we hope you did as well. Please tune in next Monday for part two of the interview in which we discuss Jack's personal journey with his autoimmune disease, how he lost his father to terminal stage cancer and so much more. We really dive deep into Jack's personal and vulnerable past and all the lessons that made him such a well-respected professional in his field of academia and the wonderful human that he is today. As always, we greatly appreciate your support and hope you had an enjoyable week. And we hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.